In his uh, famous work, Lectures to My Students, Charles Spurgeon gives instruction to pastors on, on everything from public prayer to illustrations to personal holiness in their own lives and, and to the call to ministry. In some places in the book, um, he writes in sort of a, sort of a typical Spurgeonian over-the-top manner that can um, kind of strike fear and apprehension into the hearts of ministers or soon-to-be ministers, pastors, especially in his lecture on the call to ministry itself where, where he writes this. Listen carefully. He says this. The first sign of the heavenly call is an intense, all-absorbing desire for the work. In order to a true call to the ministry, there must be an irresistible, overwhelming craving and raging thirst for telling others what God has done to our own souls. Later in that same paragraph, he says this, Do not enter the ministry if you can help it was the deeply sage advice of a divine to one who sought his judgment. If any student in this room could be content to be a newspaper editor or a grocer or a farmer or a doctor or a lawyer or a senator or a king, in the name of heaven and earth, let him go his way. He is not the man in whom dwells the Spirit of God in its fullness." For a man so filled with God would utterly weary of any pursuit but that for which his inmost soul pants. And then he says, if on the other hand, you can say that for all the wealth of both the Indies, you could not and dare not espouse any other calling so as to be put aside from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, then depend on it. If other things be equally satisfactory, you have the signs of this apostleship. We must not feel, we must feel that woe is unto us if we preach not the gospel. The word of God must be unto us as fire in our bones. Otherwise, if we undertake the ministry, we shall be unhappy in it, shall be unable to bear the self-denials incident to it, and shall be of little service to those among whom we minister. I speak of self-denials, and well may I, for the true pastor's work is full of them, and without a love to his calling he will soon succumb, and either leave the drudgery or move on in discontent, burdened with a monotony as tiresome as that of a blind horse in a mill. I don't know what a blind horse in a mill is. I can guess, I guess. But to all of that, I say this. Okay, Charles. I think it's a little over the top. There are days when I dream of working in a factory or of helping my brother-in-law run the family business back in New Hampshire. There are days, and I have moments, when I imagine myself as a gopher for one of my kids or joining the house-flipping craze, or whatever. As a pastor, there are times when I can see myself doing something else. But I understand Spurgeon's point. I see what he's getting at here. We want ministers who actually want to be ministers. Not those who are simply looking to, to make a living, or, or who are serving under compulsion, as 1 Peter 5 talks about. I fully agree 
That all too often, young men are pushed into the ministry by well-meaning people who think that every, every college or youth group super-Christian ought to be a pastor. We are, on the, whole, on the whole, probably too quick to give someone the green light for full-time ministry. Kevin DeYoung, who is a, himself a pastor and an author, seminary professor, he, he says this about Spurgeon's quote. He says, Is it really a biblical requirement to insist that a pastor could not possibly be content doing anything else? How does this allow for the natural, naturally diffident, and I had to look that up, it means those who lack self-confidence, or those possessing various uh, interests or gifts? He says, true, I don't want a pastor whose real passion is drywall or needlework. His passion must be for the gospel and for preaching. But according to Spurgeon, a pastor must not even be content doing something else. This is a heavy burden for a young men who are considering ministry but also feel energized by other pursuits. More significantly, this can be a heavy burden for the weary, discouraged pastor who, if truth be told, probably has some days where he would be more content doing anything but full-time ministry. Well, I agree with Kevin. Um, I am one who is naturally diffident not a gifted public speaker, and honestly, until I was well into my 30s, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up. But now that I'm here, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I want you to understand that I am completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. But my point in bringing up Spurgeon's quote, and it's a long one, as well as De Young's response to it is to point out that, that in some respects they're, they're actually saying the same thing. And we would all agree with them. Essentially, we want our pastors to be compelled by the Lord to preach the word. Not by career advancement or, or financial gain or by the popularity in the, in the community, but rather because we have been entrusted with a stewardship from Christ and are driven by the Holy Spirit. Jesus gently rebuked and and restored Simon Peter after he denied Christ, after the resurrection, and he said this, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Now there is more to a pastoral job description than that, but but there is not less. Feed, tend, feed. Paul will summarize and really validate what Spurgeon was getting at, as well as expand on Christ's command. When he writes in his second letter to to Timothy, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Here's what I'm getting at, especially in the midst of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The gospel is the priority. The gospel is the priority. Now let me expand on this a little bit. In this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is speaking evangelistically. He was at the core, in his heart, he was an evangelist. And yet I don't think he'd disagree if we broadened that to say it to say it like this, the preaching or proclamation of the word of God is the priority. The feeding and tending of the flock of Christ purchased with his own blood is the priority of the pastor. This must be true regardless, frankly, regardless of what the church decides to pay him. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you weren't here last week, that opening was probably a little awkward. Um, but I want to read this whole chapter, and then we're going to focus on the second half this week. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, that I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. 
To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under, myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let's stop and pray. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need today. Feed us from your word, that we might become conformed to the image of Christ. Help us to remain um, confident in the gospel, that the gospel is a priority, not just of, uh, not just of me, uh, but of the church, of each of us, Lord, in our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we saw last week, um, Paul has argued that it is, the, it is the church's responsibility to pay him as an apostle and as a minister of the gospel. And as an apostle, he was specifically sent by Christ to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. In the first half of this chapter, Paul kind of pulls out all the stops he musters all of the arguments that he can to establish his right to support. And he did so for one sole purpose, to spotlight his refusal to exercise that right. Sometimes it's hard to remember, especially if you, if you miss a week here or there. But this chapter is written in the context of Paul's calling for the more, the more mature Corinthian Christians to be willing to give up their right to eating meat or food that has been offered to idols in order to not lay out a stumbling block for the younger believers. And his whole argument is this, if I can demonstrate my willingness to give up this right, you should be willing to give up that right the right to eat whatever food they want, knowing that the, that the gods behind the idolatry, they aren't even real. But again, Paul is, Paul is writing here to, to spotlight his refusal to exercise his right to payment for the work he's done. Because advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth has been his overarching reason his overarching drive and purpose behind his refusal even to accept payment from them in the first place. That's why at the end of this section, which really goes all the way into chapter 11, verse 1, Paul will say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's not um, building himself up here. He's just saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Teaching this church like we as parents teach our children often. In other words, Paul's motives here um, to work without pay 
This motive is not, it's not so that he can teach them a lesson. He's actually refusing pay because his payment, his reward, is seeing the gospel spread to the ends of the earth through the work that he's doing. And the Corinthians have clearly benefited from his preaching. They have grown as a church, both spiritually and physically, numerically. They continue to benefit from his shepherding, even through these letters that he writes them. And in his second letter, um, 2 Corinthians, he's going to encourage them, even strongly encourage them, to give support to other churches. And I also want to point out here that through all of this, there are times when Paul does accept support from other churches, namely the church at Philippi. Listen to his conclusion to that letter. This is how uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 to 19, how the letter ends. He says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The, the Philippian Christians, who were not known for their wealth, by the way, they generously supported Paul and even other churches, even when he was ministering far away from them. The Corinthians, who were known for their wealth, did not support Paul. And the tones of the two letters really couldn't be more different from each other. And I point this out because it clearly shows the difference in maturity between the two churches. One way that a, one way that a church or even an individual Christian's maturity can be measured is by looking at their checkbook. But having said that, Remember, Jesus says in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he said to his disciples to him, Uh, He called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. And the Corinthians and the Philippians really fit that illustration perfectly. Paul is patient with the Corinthians. He makes no demands of payment. In fact, he refuses. And he uses the the occasion of of their question of whether or not it was appropriate for Christians to eat food offered to idols. And he uses that question in order to instruct them and correct them in this matter. And he uses himself as an example. That's what he's doing in chapter 9. And so we saw in the middle of 
Uh, Verse 12 there, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. It's as if the Apostle Paul is carrying a burden on his back and he does not want to lay it down anywhere that will cause the Corinthians to trip and fall. So let's look at this burden, the burden here. Verse 15 Uh, Starting in verse 15, I'll read 15 to 18 again. He says, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as to not make use of my right in the gospel. Think of it as a burden. Necessity is laid upon me, he says. Many of the Old Testament minor prophets begin their their books like this. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. I've always found it interesting that the King James Version, some of the older versions, translate it like this. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. Micah sees a similar burden, an oracle that he has to lay out for the people. And I think this is how Paul feels about his message and his ministry. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. This is a burden. Now, don't get me wrong, it, the burden is a, is a joy for him, clearly, but it's a burden nonetheless. And as Paul picks up on the idea of, of not making use of his right, as he begins this, he's actually emphatic. I, for my part, have made no use of these rights. He's actually using, it's hard to see this in English, but there's actually great emotion to what he is saying here. He's telling us of his own personal settled resolve. He's not saying this is what all preachers should do, what he has personally done. In fact, the first half of the chapter, uh, he said we often, referring specifically to himself and Barnabas. But now he changes it to the singular saying I. This is what I am doing. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? I have made no use of any of these rights. Paul has not, nor does he intend to make use of this. It's not why he's writing this. Instead, he's offering, as I said, he's offering himself as an example of one who gives the proclamation of the gospel the absolute priority of his life. In fact, while it is his right to make a living by the gospel, verse 14, he would rather die than have anyone take away that boast. Because for Paul... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. So what does he mean in this boasting? Well, notice that there are, kind of beginning in the middle of verse 15, there are four sentences in a row that begin with the word for, F-O-R. And each of them really builds on the one that came before. And what they build toward is that, it's that some outside pressure has compelled him to preach the gospel. 
Now, he's not unwilling. He is willing. He's doing this of his own will. But at the same time, it's not his personal choice, he says. Listen to these sentences. It's in the middle of verse 15. It says, For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Paul is giving us a kind of a glimpse into his understanding of his own calling in Christ. In other words, he sees this decision to support himself, not as his own personal choice or his own ethical standard, but as one laid on him by God. He sees himself as a a suffering slave of Christ. Remember the story of, of his conversion? Christ said this about Paul when he saved him in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. These are the words of Christ. Speaking of Paul, he says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul here isn't His boasting isn't, I'm so holy. I'm so holy, I'm doing this for free. He's boasting that he is compelled to obedience by Christ. He is compelled to the work of Christ by Christ himself. He would rather die than have anyone be able to credibly say of him, he's just doing it for the money. No, I'm doing this because the power of Christ compels me. This is the burden of the prophets. Amos, Amos chapter 3, verse 8. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Consider the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name... There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Paul is saying that he absolutely must preach the gospel if he does not. If he does not, he actually faces what we really can only call the ultimate calamity. Woe to me! Paul will face judgment if he disobeys Christ's command. When you see that woe to me in the scriptures, or woe to someone, that's not just a flippant little saying. That means God is going to pour out his judgment on that person. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Well, what then is his reward? Look at verse 18. He says, what then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. For Paul, the reward for preaching is not a paycheck. It's seeing souls set free in Christ. His reward is that he is able to obey Christ's call, Christ's command, without outside motivation. 
His reward is that he is able to turn their worlds upside down with the gospel. Remember, Corinth is this this wealthy port city filled with pagan worship, which was big business. Yet Paul could boast in his obedience rather than in the money that he was making. Paul was truly countercultural in the city of Corinth as a teacher, as a philosopher, so to speak. But even beyond giving up his right to payment, his objective was to win as many to Christ as possible by, by whatever means appropriate. Paul was, to, to use a phrase from Spurgeon again, Paul was a soul winner. A soul winner. Pick it up in verse 19. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being under the, myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all. For the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Back in verse 17, in that previous section, Paul had likened his ministry to a household manager overseeing the care of an estate. That's what he means when he calls himself a steward there in verse 17. Here, beginning in verse 19, he's shifting to call himself a a slave, a servant, conforming to his situation and his surroundings. In verse 17, he he was a faithful steward compelled to preach. Now he's enslaved himself for the greatest possible gains for the gospel. In Romans chapter 9, he will even say that if it were possible... He would would go so far as to give up his own salvation to see his countrymen come to Christ, to see his fellow Jews trust in Christ. He'd do anything to see people trust in Christ. Paul is willing to lay down all of his rights to see the gospel take root in the hearts of unbelievers. He started this chapter... um, By asking the question, am I not free? Yes, he's free. Meaning here that he's free financially. He's financially independent, yet he is a slave to Christ. And he has made himself a servant to all, to both Jew and Gentile, in order to win souls for Christ. And so he explains how he has made himself a servant to the Jews, he starts with. You can see that in verse 20. I became as a Jew. Paul's missionary custom, according to Acts chapter 17, verse 2, um, you can see the pattern throughout the second part of Acts. Paul's missionary custom was that when he would enter into a new city, he would go first to the Jewish city. Well, usually he would see if there were any Christians there already. But then he would go first to the Jewish synagogue in order to witness and to preach of the good news of Jesus Christ to the Jewish people. This was a pattern, really, that he picked up from Christ himself, and 
Paul will explain it like this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so just sort of pragmatically, practically, he would find the synagogue and he would go there and share the gospel. We know that Paul was Jewish himself. In fact, he will defend himself in 2 Corinthians by, by saying this, are they, Hebrews of he, uh, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. So what does it mean then, in this verse here, verse 20, that Paul says that he became as a Jew? As a Jew. He, he was Jewish. Well, the key, I believe, is the parenthetical statement in the second part of the verse, which says, though not being myself under the law. He's speaking religiously, not ethnically. Paul will always identify with his own people, the Jews. He does this in Romans chapter 9. I mentioned it before. We're going to get there again in a minute. Paul is saying that as a Christian, he is no longer under the law, but under grace. As a Christian, he's no longer compelled to keep every jot of the law in order to earn a right standing before God, in order to earn righteousness. Paul is not here contradicting David, the psalmist, who said the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, and you probably know the rest of Psalm 19. He's not contradicting the Old Testament. He's not contradicting the psalmist. He's saying that as a Christian, his entire view of the law has completely changed because of the grace of God. No longer must he obey in order to earn justification. Now he has the privilege of obedience in order to be like the one who justifies, in order to be like the one who perfectly kept the law, Jesus Christ. Paul is saying here that he became as a Jew. That doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that he has, he's joined the group called the Judaizers, that group of false teachers who, who taught that you must obey the law in order to be saved. It means that he refuses to let his own freedom from the law become a stumbling block to the Jewish people. There are several examples in the book of Acts Um, of Paul doing this very thing, acting and following Jewish customs, go so far as to to have Timothy circumcised for this very reason. Probably the most striking example, even more so than that, is this simple statement that we, we usually miss the significance of. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, where Paul is kind of laying out his testimony as a madman, he says. There's one sentence, and it's verse 24, that says this. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Why is that statement significant for this concept of becoming as the Jews? To the Jews, I became as a Jew. See, we believe that he received these lashes, these whippings, for preaching the gospel in the synagogues, possibly in the temple or in and around Jerusalem. But we believe that he received these. The whole context here is that he received these lashes for preaching the gospel to the Jewish people. 
I don't want to take the time to get lost here in the Mishnah, the ancient Jewish commentary on the law, but these lashes were seen as an acceptable alternative to being cut off from the people of Israel, which was what the law required for those that they would view as being false teachers. That's why they punished him, because they were saying that Paul was a false teacher. Paul is saying, just with this simple statement, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Five times he received 39 lashes so that he wouldn't be cut off permanently, expelled from the people of Israel and unable to preach to them. Five times Paul chose 39 lashes rather than being barred for life from his fellow Jews whom he loved and desperately wanted to see trust in Christ. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 3 says this. Just listen to his love and willingness to lay down his own rights for the Jews. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul was willing to lay down every right in order that the Jews might come to Christ. He was willing to do the same for the Gentiles. Look at verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Paul was once known as the Pharisee of Pharisees. He gave up his zeal, his zeal for the tradition of his fathers. He gave up the righteousness that he thought that he had worked so hard to gain under the law so that he could live under the grace of God. In fact, he became like a Gentile. He became as one without a heritage. He became as one without the traditions of the fathers, as one without the works of the law, so that he might rely on the law of Christ, which we could summarize with the words grace, faith, and steadfast love. Of Christ. He does so in order to win Gentiles to salvation in Christ alone. He's willing to give it all up. His status in the Jewish community, Pharisee of Pharisees. He's willing to give it all up that the Gentiles might trust in Christ alone for salvation. And then in verse 22, he actually throws in another category. Look at verse 22. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul's conversion and his Christian life is one of weakness, yet of relying on the strength of Christ This ought to be true of any minister of the gospel. This ought to be true of any Christian. Weak, yet relying on Christ. And then Paul's famous statement here, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. That really is a summary of what he's been saying all along. 
And it leads into his ultimate motivation there in verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul's ultimate goal in this life is to glorify God by being a soul winner, by being obedient to his call on his life. And he does this by remaining as a, as a, as a preacher, even as a disciplined preacher. As a disciplined preacher, this last paragraph here, it almost looks like he's taking a left turn or a sharp turn here. Verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body to keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself would become disqualified. The disciplined preacher has a different goal. Paul is calling on the Corinthians to set their goals as the same. This isn't about retirement. This isn't about collecting the most things in this life or getting the top of the corporate ladder or whatever. We run this race of the Christian life for a specific prize. And it is not a perishable wreath. The the diadem, the crown that they would put on the the Olympic uh, athletes that was made out of, I don't know, some plant. I can't remember which. doesn't matter. Perishable. Kathy knows. You can ask her after. We run this race of the Christian life for a specific prize, and it is an eternal reward. And so we keep ourselves under the control of the Holy Spirit that we might hear the final reward, that we might hear and share in that final blessing. Well done, good and faithful servant. For you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to hear these words. Enter into the joy of your master. And at the end of our lives, we want to be able to say, as Paul did, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul is willing to give up all of his rights as an apostle, as a minister of the gospel, in order to see people love Christ as he did. I don't don't think this chapter is about paying a pastor at all. I think this is about selflessness and sacrifice. I think this is about love and mercy. I think this is about presenting every man complete in Christ. I think this is about speaking the truth in love so that we would grow up into every way, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I think this chapter is about the church, 
and the growth of the church. Pray with me. Lord, I pray that we would be willing to lay down our rights so as to not be a stumbling block to our friends and our family. That we would lay down our rights that the gospel would shine, that Christ would be glorified, that we would give up our Sundays off, that we might gather in your name to be fed, to feed others, to encourage, to sing praises to your name, that we might be self-sacrificial throughout the week to our families, that our children might grow up in the fear and instruction of the Lord that our neighbors would know Christ and him crucified. That we would continue to be a people who sacrificially serve and worship the one who gave everything for us. Lord, we are reminded of that as we come to the table this morning. That the sacrifices that we can make are nothing compared to the sacrifice of our Savior. That though Jesus Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, poured himself out for us, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that, we might, that he might save us and we might worship him. Father, we don't presume to come to this table by any reason except Christ alone. And so we do that today as your people, Lord. We eat and drink and see that the Lord is good. We proclaim Jesus' death until he returns. This is our sacrifice of praise, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.